0: Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of the CUHK Anthropology Podcast. Today, we're very happy to have our assistant professor, Lila Verweiner, here as our guest. Lila received her PhD in social anthropology from the New School for Social Research in 2015, and she has an MA in anthropology from the New School, as well as an MA in social thought from New York University. And her research lies in the intersection of urban property and religious life within the legal regimes of contemporary India. She has conducted field work in Mumbai, India and Hong Kong. Thank you for um for speaking with us, Laila. So um to start with, I think um Shall we talk a little bit about your research focus of the Parsi community? Because I think um some people would know that a lot of um a lot of our very iconic landmarks or public mm-hmm. facilities are actually developed by the Parsi community in Hong Kong mm-hmm. and perhaps in, in, in Mumbai or in India as well. So but then there are still a lot of mystery around this community and and around this religion so maybe to start with can you share with us um, what interests you in the first place about this topic and like who are these people and what is this community like
1: absolutely Um, i actually got interested um, from a larger interest in uh, urban space in mumbai that's what i wanted to look at i'm from mumbai i was born there Um, And I left when I was a child to to go to the U.S. But um, when uh, everybody who does research on Mumbai, they always look at slums, right? At informal housing settlements. And they should because it's almost half of the city. Okay, So almost half of Mumbai residents live in informal housing. Um, And I felt like that was very interesting. And as I read more and more about it, what struck me was the contrast between um, that housing, private housing, and then the amount of space that religious groups owned, all communities, all together. Um, I'm also a Parsi, and so from my own background, I knew that Parsis own a huge amount of land in Mumbai, but again, they own this as a group. So it's not, there are private landowners, but... Um, so I was really interested, or I thought wouldn't it be incredible because I have this access to my community, which is a very small community, um to understand what kind of effects it has on the general urban space of the city because of all this religious space yeah. and so I went into my project studying that um and then um, I got really interested in the legal mechanism that they were using to own all this communal space together. It's not actually easy to own things in, with other people, mm-hmm. right? Um, most, um, you know, flats are owned by family uh, people, but you have to give people's names. So how does it work that a whole group can own something, right? So I got really interested in the trust, which is the legal mechanism to do that. Mm-hmm. And then um, in the Parsi's case in Mumbai, a lot of Parsi started migrating to Mumbai from the shores of Gujarat, which is the state just north of, of Maashtra, um, because they had good colonial ties with the British colonial government. Mm-hmm. So the British colonials would give them incentives, because they were shipbuilders, and they wanted to use their ships for the trade, um, to come to Mumbai. and. Um, Often gave them a lot of favors. They didn't give them a lot of land, but gave them favors to own land for really long periods of time. Mm -hmm. So they got long leases to land in a city that very similar to Hong Kong, um, um, Bombay, which I think was what it was called before 1995. um, In the 17th century, had lots of fishing villages, but um, the British really came in at created a kind of urban space to it. And then lots of migrants came for work and other purposes there. So that's very similar to Hong Kong too, right? Before the British were definitely, it's not like the British discovered this place. There were people living here before and but with um, the colonial power came, you know, a kind of development uh, in a different way. And um, because of the Parsi's historic um, industry of shipbuilding um, many of them came on ships and traded to uh, Hong Kong mm-hmm. and and Canton in a, in, a, in the larger sense. So in a sense, there's a, always been this long term connection between the two cities. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, one one reason that the Parsis also um, bought so much real estate in colonial Bombay was that they made a lot of money in the trade from China. Mm-hmm. So a lot of, I mean, like big money, right? Like really, really wealthy, um, wealthy traders would, you know, make these lavish mansions and all these things, and you know, some of them had family members, and all of that that wealth went down to their family, and some of them decided that they would endow some of their property for the whole community to. Because they have this experience of being a very small minority in a mm-hmm. very big place, right? So to build sacred spaces like temples and prayer grounds, and they built schools. They and then they started building a lot of housing. Mm-hmm. And once these wealthy people started doing that, they uh, endowed these spaces with trusts. And those spaces, because of the because they're considered charity, could remain forever. Mm-hmm. And that's how they really marked their, um, you know, the small enclaves of Parsi life in Mumbai. Mm-hmm. So as the city grows up around it and continues to have more and more migrants um, coming to it, we still have these small enclaves of Parsi life in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, again, only familiarly. So my my book is a kind of looking at all of the struggles they have and how, the way that they nurture their community life and things like that. And then in my postdoctoral fellowship, I was so lucky because I had the funding to um I noticed in Bombay that a lot of the houses that were endowed, um, would say, Oh, these are these houses were gifts from Parsi's in Hong Kong and I was like, Oh, what's going on <laughs> in Hong Kong? Let's go see and I was so lucky that I had funding to do that. And so in twenty seventeen I came to Hong Kong to do research for the first time mm-hmm. and for very short trips but um, I met the small group of Parsis here, and they have a little bit of space in Posway um, Lake. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about some of their projects and who they were as a community and yeah, things like that. And yes, so a lot of um, early Parsis you know, who came here for trade, some of them stayed. Mm-hmm. Again, they, had, they got favors from the British government and had bought up land and made some city infrastructure, right? So. Um, G. Modi was one of the founding uh, donors for Hong Kong University. There's still a bust of his place um, in the old building of the university, and the Parsi priest in Hong Kong every year goes and garlands the, the bust just to commemorate his, um, you know, historic achievement. Um, I believe the Kowloon Cricket Club also had its founding donation from Parsis, Um And uh, some of them were very involved. In the, Life at, at the very early period mm-hmm. and then um, the community always remained quite small here. Mm. Yeah, Actually how small is this community of yeah, the Parsi population? Um, in Hong Kong and in Bombay, so in this state, Bombay right now is probably has the largest concentration of Parsi, so, so around 40,000, so again mm-hmm. small. in a city of like 18 million, 25 million of a larger area right. and in Hong Kong the population is probably between 200, 200 and 220 mm-hmm. so really um uh, it's just a group of families mm-hmm. yeah yeah so can i ask uh, what's your memory of this community because you are also a party yeah. and i guess you're you have uh, you also involved in some of these Perhaps family or community gatherings, mm-hmm. and you will go to these uh, places that you just mentioned. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm curious, what's your personal memory about of these communities in in, in Hong uh, Kong or in, 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 in those yeah. places? Um, places I think are uh, they are very small and sort of um, uh, I don't know how you would say it, but um, a, a community that likes to stick together for some things, very food loving community. Um so there are lots of feasts, a lot of our rituals are surrounded with food and eating big feasts. Um, why I love coming to Hong Kong because I think Hong Kong is also like to mm-hmm. celebrate like that. And um and um but they're also at least in India, and this is where Hong Kong is very different, the Hong Kong community, at least in India, the community is very divided about issues like intermarriage, mm-hmm. conversion, um and, you know, the proper way to do rituals, for example. So I was really surprised and then also a little sad that in my field work, a lot of times I was going to court cases Mm -hmm. and the court cases were amongst family members, Mm -hmm. right? Or amongst families that were suing the trust or the trust trying to evict people. So again, in this relatively small community, I had a lot of conflict. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was a big surprise for me. But yeah. But in terms of my welcome as a as a you know anthropologist and a graduate student worker, they were very welcoming and open. You know? and um, I always tell students that you'd be surprised, you students always fear that people won't want to talk to them. People love to talk about their lives and their problems. <laughs> so I think if you develop, you know, trust um between people. Uh, you can learn a lot from them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in um, anthropology, in the past, people like to say um, anthropology is the studies of others, right? They they like to mm-hmm. go to kind of a strange place and meet strangers who are very different from themselves. Yeah. Um, so how do you feel about studying your own group? Yeah. Uh, is it easier because you don't have the language or you don't, you, you're you writing some connections in school? Thanks, that yeah, that's a great question. I think I felt always like an insider sometimes and an outsider other times. So I think in terms of access, I had an easy access, mm-hmm. right? Because um, people maybe didn't know me, but they maybe knew right. members of my extended family. Like some of the, the trustees I talked to, they like, "Oh, I remember your grandfather." You know, so there was that familiarity, but. Um, it then becomes very complicated because it becomes very personal to you. Or they, you know, they'll be like, "I remember your grandfather," and not in a nice way. Or I'm just giving an example. Um, um, so it becomes very complicated. And then sometimes I was really seen as an outsider because I didn't share the same problems with them. Meaning, the, one of the biggest problems that I know Hong Kongers can sort of um, relate to this is housing, right? Getting living in a nice enough house. For, for parents thinking, you know, when my child gets married, where will they live? Um, the house is so small. Parents thinking, oh my gosh, can we really have more children? We have no space for them. Mm-hmm. And so these issues were really big. And I didn't share those because I was coming from them to be honest, right? Uh, so it became like in certain circumstances helpful. In certain circumstances, I was seen to like, oh, well, you know, you're not like us at all. Um, um, so it, I, you know, it became very interesting to think that like I, I can reconsider, you know, what used to be called a native anthropologist. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel that way all the time, um, but I did have very special access. Mm-hmm. So um, you talked about how properties are owned um, as a religious group, right? For me, it sounds quite ideal. <laughs> like nothing is um, owned by a person. But then um like everything is shared. Um but then you also mentioned how free mm-hmm. because you need to go to court case. Yes. So can you share more about this um like kind of what you mm-hmm. just mentioned? And what are the struggles in it? Right. So that's um that became really the, the issue because yes, everything is shared, right? And then you can imagine the problems when people think they're not getting their share. So that's one problem. Um, that that happens, um, especially in terms of housing, because the stakes of the house, right, have this nice one-bedroom or two-bedroom flat in Bombay, which is oh, which on the market price would be, the prices are really expensive. Um, is now given to charity. So again, these properties are uh, housing, what they call housing colonies, that are owned. Uh, are not owned by the community, but run by a trust source, you know, an office Mm -hmm. And then what becomes, um, what the conflict starts with when the trust, uh, who the trust thinks is worthy of the charity. And that comes into then conflict with the city's rental laws Mm -hmm. um, about who can inherit flats, and they're all rent controlled flats because they were built before 1947. So it all becomes very confusing where the urban c- the laws of the city come into conflict with the rules of the trust, which come into conflict with what you know individual families want to do with that property, which they can use but they don't own. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are lots of um, disputes about about those kinds of things. I'm also curious about like the relationship between the trust, uh, like the three parties the Individual families, the trust, and the city. So, the trust member should be um, like, is it elected or how? How does the trust form? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. So, usually in a trust, um, and there are all different kinds of trusts. I only worked on public charitable ones. Mm-hmm. The donor would write into the trustee, "I'm giving this, this mansion, this house in Colony, whatever, to the community." And it will be run by trustees and they'll tell tell the you know in the document how they want the trustees. Usually these were nominated mm. um, and, and sometimes even members of the donors family. So they will say, I want only my descendants to be trustees, or they could say, I want my descendants, and then they can nominate whoever else. So lots of trustees tend to be accountants and lawyers because of all these problems, right? They need people to manage all the space. Um, then, um, one of the biggest trusts that I worked on, which is also one of the biggest landowners made in Mumbai, is called the Bombay Parsi Panchayat. Panchayat means a council. Mm-hmm. So, and all their BPP, that's what I call them all the time in my book instead of writing it all out. <laughs> the BPP um, had, was, had nominated trustees for centuries, maybe for centuries. And then, in two thousand eight, a lot of people in the community felt they had too much power, mm-hmm. and they didn't have enough say in what the trust was doing. Mm-hmm. So they went to court again and then um, fought in a court battle to make an open election to any party involved in Bombay to uh, to you know vote for the trustees they wanted. Mm-hmm. And I met and interviewed and spent time with many people who actually pushed for this for this universal adult franchise, the moment, right? So that every adult person could vote for um, trustees, and they really had the best intentions, right? right. A kind of um, a fight for representation, and um, you know they wanted some accountability from the trustees to the people and things like that. But what ended up happening was that a lot of money started to get Involved in the election campaigns. And then of course it, like an election it becomes a kind of popularity contest. And so I am, did do a lot of fieldwork. I went to I think like 35 election um campaign events. And you know the, the, the nominee nominees are making the speeches over and over again, the same speeches, and then the people in the audience are asking questions. And that actually increased a bit of the division because some people said, we only want orthodox religious people to be trustees. They are mutually entrusted with our sacred space. And other people said, no, we need more reform-minded people who are going to go with the times to be trustees." Mm-hmm. And so all these elections then became really heated, and I even saw violence in one of them, like fist fighting, and it was just wild, <laughs> honestly. Um, so. And again, the elections are only for this one trust. Most smaller trusts have nominated trustees, which might be a better idea now that we see the effects. Yeah. Sounds like a complicated, uh, mechanism. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And it sounds like a little society within a bigger society, yes. they have their own ways of doing things and they have their own ways of like organizing comedies, yeah. organized mobility. Yes. And, yeah, things like that. And yeah. that. although I focused on Parsis, again, because of my access, special access and, you know, the limits of what you can do in fieldwork and mm-hmm. everything, mm-hmm. especially in a big space, but other communities have very parallel problems and issues, but in their own, in their own ways. Mm. Um, so I think that was one of the challenges in doing fieldwork and writing the book, was how to Weave together all these complicated things so that it makes sense, and also makes sense to people who want to know something about parsons, but also want to know about how humans live and argue and survive in different places. Right? Mm. So, yeah. Um, so, um, can we share more on like the difference between the case of Hong Kong and the case of Mumbai? Yeah, sure. Um, I think so. Hong Kong, at least it seems to me, and I haven't done the Breadth of research that I have here as I live in Mumbai, but um, it seems to me that the community is small here, very close knit. There are some fourth-generation families, so families who Parsi families that are originally from India or Pakistan and have lived here for four generations. Um, and then there are lots of people, um, lots of Parsis in the community who come. Um, for, you know, their job is posting them here and then they come to the events and then they go wherever they go. And then there are people like me who like migrate to Hong Kong. Um, so um, in general, it's, and also the mechanism of their uh, property and things like that is a little bit different because Hong Kong, is a religious corporation. and has different rules than the trust mm-hmm. in Mumbai had. And it's also just a different sort of, Economic landscape here, different rules for charities here, mm. and things like that. So, they, I asked, you know, very, you know, thinking through my old research, I was asking some of the same questions to the trustees here. And they were like, no, no, we don't have that issue. So I said, oh, would you ever build a housing colony for our And they were like, no, why would we do that? <laughs> you know, I didn't, the, the, the issues are totally different. So, mm. um, and the trustees stressed to me that. What was very important to them was that of course there disagreements in the community but they really wanted the harmony and they kept saying that word over um, harmony in yeah. hmm. so So there's also a lot of changes over time and over space yeah like like you said there is like a change in the vision and mm-hmm. um what people want out of the system and out of this community and they kind of want to reform that, Reform mm. it, yeah. Some people and yeah, some, some people right. are saying everything. This is in India. Everything mm. now is terrible. We should go back to the ways, mm. right? We need people to be more religious, marry right. only within the community, um, all sorts of you know other other things like that. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and I think um, it's very interesting to witness and also to analyze these, like how 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 all the changes happen Mm -hmm. so it it seems to me it has been it this system has been there for centuries and for many years but then it's not a like fixed thing it always changes over time and people are always negotiating within these different contexts and different um different elements of playing are coming into play so um so, how do you, how would you describe, or how would you say, is the changes and what you witnessed, or what you, what you saw over your research? What are some of the forces that that is in play in these, um, that leads to these changes, and what are the changes? That's a great question. I think um, so much of it was, you know, sometimes when you're doing research on small small community in, in my case, uh, you get kind of like narrowed down into like what's going on. And you know, even Parsi's joke that a lot of their problems are a storm in a teacup, right? Like really intense, but it's actually like a small thing. Um and so um it was even, you know, my book reviewers and people who read some of my books say, like, no, zoom out a little bit, see how it's actually um they're affected and they affect city life and things like that. Um, so, there's a lot of changes when the city changes. For example, when rental laws changed in the, the 1940s, that had a huge impact on what was going on. Um, also, a lot of things changed in 1990 which is when India liberalized its economy. Then, the real estate value, which was already pretty high because it's a, a city on a peninsula, right? So, you can't just like keep expanding the city. But the real estate value went skyrocketing. So there were people who lived in charity flats. They were paying about, kind of think of the equivalent of, say, a hundred Hong Kong dollars for a two-bedroom flat, mm. okay, in a city with real estate value like Hong Kong, mm. right? And other people are like, how is this fair, right? How is this, you know, this fair, how does this one community have so much privilege and others to and things like that. So, there's a lot of um, fighting, or not fighting, but a lot of issues that come up right. like that. And then within the community, um, there are growing sort of agitation over issues of gender equality within the community mm. as well. So, and then of course, you know, once those get taken to the courts, it becomes an issue not just for Parsi women, but also for Indian women in general, mm. right? Because once court cases are decided, mm. they become precedents. Everybody. Mm. So um, these are some of the sort of intersections mm. between a small minority and what goes on within it, but also the larger society. Mm. Can we know more detail about the like women uh, power? Can I sorry oh. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's again the history of it is a little complicated, but there was a court case settled in 1908 um, that was actually about a dispute about trusts. But what ended up being written into part of the, it's not part of the judgment, but part of a legal opinion that the judge added on to it that said that it is the Parsi custom that men can marry out of the community and have their children, not their wives, but their children counted as Parsi. And women who do so cannot. Mm -hmm. So that custom has sort of been Um, continued on and accepted by a lot of the trusts. So what would happen then, um, and this sort of went into a lot of different issues when it comes to housing, what would happen is if you were a Parsi family in your trust flat, um, you could pass this down to your children. If you only had daughters and you married out of the community, they wouldn't be counted as Parsi anymore and they couldn't live there anymore. So they would be the victims. And so a lot of Parsi women started agitating about that. Um then um a lot of because you know with intermarriage then they would not be counted, they weren't allowed to access the temples or any of the sacred space. And so they were like all these battles that were fought over these kinds of events. And then during my fieldwork, so this is like how sometimes things are magically fall into your lap in fieldwork. Um, a Parsi woman was suing her trust for for gender discrimination on these accounts. And I got to go to her court case and talk to her. I talked to the other trustees and things like that. And um, it was absolutely fascinating. The court ruled against her. And then she took the case to the Indian Supreme Court. And so now that case is in and it actually has a lot of effects to um, so the larger issues of the case are really about how much the court can force religious communities to do. Um, you know, what are, you know, ind- women's religious rights trump the religious, you know, rules of our customs of a community mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, so that was sort of a very exciting during our fieldwork but it's still not resolved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, we go back to the, like, the the linkage between Kazi community and public life or public um, space. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, um, as I mentioned in the beginning, especially in Hong Kong, as you said, there are so many um, things that are kind of developed by the like the staff area. Yeah. And um, I think Chim right, Shao, that area, like Modi Road, yeah. we have many. Yeah. We have it named after Body, mm-hmm. right? So um I'm really curious so uh, except doing except having trust and having shared property for the community, they're also doing quite a lot for for people outside the community. Yes right? for yes. Absolutely. for the place that they are re- that they're living on. Yes. So I'm very curious why. Like mm-hmm. why would they why would they do such thing and um do a lot of charity work and yeah how would you how is how would you say is the general uh the mm-hmm. relationship between like quasi community mm-hmm. and the uh, like, public um space in general? Mm-hmm. Is that what about, like, in general i mean first of all giving charity is part of our sort of interest so that's just something that's very important to do And again, at all these feasts and things that we have, it's very um, a lot of those are supported by uh, communal funds. So people group money together and give charity. to even you know host the feast for different kinds of people. And um, I think in India, unfortunately, the Bombay Parsi Panchayat, because of the way the trustee was written in the 1890s. Focuses most of its giving just for us, mm-hmm. but other trusts give, um, um, like the Tata, have a lot of trusts, and they are really um, emphasize that they give to all India or like any Indian it, for example. Uh, so it's a really a difference in, in
0: you know what
1: the donors' wish was at the time of making those um, those charitable things. The Hong Kong, Hong Kong Trust really has said always that they have always given to local charities as well as send money to India for other Parsi things. Or now they um, give charity also to support uh, Zoroastrian temple building in other parts of the diaspora. But they've always, always given to local charity. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Hong Kongers, again, especially the fourth gener- generation families, they really identify as Parsi's but also as Hong Kongers, right? Mm-hmm. They're like, we're not Indian. We don't, you know, I'm sure they visit and things like that, but they really identify as Hong Kong in mm-hmm. that sense. So they feel like this is their home and this is also where they have to, um, because they're such a privileged community that to here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is, you know, one can also, you can keep going and thinking, well, what's their real intention for doing something <laughs> or their, you know, their, but most of the times, whenever people give charity, it's complicated, right? Sometimes you give to make yourself feel good. You can make to give to make others feel good. You can give money to make yourself feel superior to others. Like all sorts of different things, all combined. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what you know. In in when you're studying charity doing sort of ethnographic fieldwork, I can't get into the minds of any one person, especially a person who's in the past right Mm. unless they left like a confessional diary with all the reasons that they did everything so I'm really looking more at not why they give but what the giving does Mm. right so what the giving does to relationships Mm -hmm. so relationships between people and each other relationships between people and each other through Mm -hmm. things through Mm -hmm. things like money or housing or something like that Mm. yeah so I find it really like interesting. Um such a small community is so related to like Hong Kong's history and you know, Hong mm-hmm. Kong's a lot of iconic landmarks and um development. Mm-hmm. But then uh, it's quite um unknown mm-hmm. <laughs> in the general public. Yeah. So yeah, I guess I think. um can <laughs> okay. <laughs> maybe about so, in a sense, this is a very policy-like question. Like, I was thinking about the different identities yeah, of the passing, because by definition, this seems to be a religious group, right? But I guess it's also an ethnic mm-hmm. group, but in a sense, it's also a very social or economic, even here, at least of, in, in history, right? Because we're talking about their economic you know, activities and social positions. Yeah. and. And because as you have emphasized, it's such a small small community, right? And there are so many things happening over little the little community and I'm sure with their relationships with other communities too. So could you touch a little bit on that? And maybe please let us know a little bit about what are their religious beliefs and practices oh. and how different things wrong or again Sure. Um so this is a basic but difficult question. <laughs> um so, Parsis are Indian Zoroastrians, and they, um, their historical sort of identity, they have this kind of like origin myth of how their community came together in India. Um, so um, the Zoroastrian uh, religion sort of started out in um, what is today Iran, and it its biggest, it was part of a sort of a, a religion part of empire. At its biggest reach of the Persian Empire, it reached all the way to what is now Western China. So it was really widespread, and then it sort of shut down. And then um, in Iran itself, um, after the Arabs had a conquest, and this is again in the year, like this is thousands of years, right? Like thousands of years ago. Um, then um, uh, Zoroastrians in Iran started to feel persecuted. And many of them, both economically and sort of politically, and a lot of them left on boats and went to India. And then their origin story is that they arrived on the shores of India and um, made an agreement with the local ruler that they would not marry out of their community. They wouldn't try to convert anybody else. And um, all some of these other promises, right? And this is where some of the, the custom of. In, of monogamy and things like that comes from, and um, and then they sort of they were mostly agricultural in India for a long time, and then once the colonial government, actually first with the Portuguese and then the British colonials um, got more involved in the trade. I think. Um, so at least in India, the ident- issues of identity, a lot of them are really based around being such a small minority in such a big place, right? A place surrounded by people with different beliefs and things like that, and uh, and I think so. In this sense, you know what was really interesting to me was that even though I didn't agree, you know, with the with the the thinking of Orthodox Zoroastrians all the time who really wanted to preserve things and um uh, and not change and go back to you know, endogamy and, all, um, and the things like that. Uh, they I did sort of understand where they were coming from, right? Because there's a huge fear that the Parsi numbers in India are declining. Every time there's like a census figure I think there's so much alarm in, in the community about demographic time. Mm. So at its peak it was about a hundred thousand in India and now it's gone down to forty thousand really fast. A lot of this is about counting, right? Who you actually count as a person. and a lot of it was just emigration. Like my family who left India, my abroad. Uh, we didn't stop being Parsis; we just stopped being Parsis in India. Um, so um, I really started to sort of understand their view and their feeling of a huge sense of loss of the community and what the values of the community, and um, you know, a lot of them say. You know, when we live together in these enclaves in these housing colonies, that's how we keep our our traditions alive. Mm-hmm. When we spread out and intermarry or marry other people, we lose all our traditions. Mm-hmm. And this is what they're saying. Um, and then the more reform-minded or liberal Parsees would say, if we don't adapt, we will die out. Right? We have to adapt to the changing times. And um, you know, if they say, if currently one in three Farsi women is marrying out of the community, why don't we just accept them and then our numbers will grow. We'll be different, but it <laughs> will grow, right? So um, I think sometimes um, what's really important even with people who don't share your worldview, right, is to understand where they're coming from first. And and you know, you can privately judge them the way you want to. But, <laughs> But in the writing, right, or in teaching, you have to say, like, you know, you may not agree, but they're really coming from this space. And hopefully they don't, you know, and, and both sides, hopefully can speak to each other and let this out. But there, there are a lot of families I know, or, and I did, you know, a few interviews with where me. so family members were disputing like this. And mm. it's, it's really tough. Um and hopefully you know they wouldn't go apart for this or that or whatever but sometimes they did so. Right. right. um, speaking of
0: that, um, I also see that you are currently or recently researching on the funeral practice.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like, um,
1: so what, what is that about? Um, so, it's complicated again, but <laughs> <laughs> traditionally Zoroastrians, um, should, because of their religious beliefs about purity and pollution, um, they, the dead body in Zoroastrianism is the ultimate pure, uh, polluting thing. So, the dead body couldn't go into fire, because that's the ultimate pure thing, and it couldn't be put into the ground, because that was polluting, and it shouldn't be put into the sea. So, people were like, what do we do? So, basically... Historically, they would build large towers where the would were placed, and eaten by large birds like vultures. This um, this practice, at least in modern Iran or Iran today, is not done anymore. And in India, uh, Mumbai has still one of the last, one of the few last remaining towers, and what they're in English is called the Towers of Silence, um, where the corpses are still placed. For lots of reasons, this um, system, according to some, is not working. Mm-hmm. One of the main reasons is that the vulture population all over Asia has declined. So there are literally no vultures coming to eat the body, eat the flesh of the force. So when you talk to older Parsis and about when they went to funerals, they would say, yeah, as soon as we started eating the body after the prayers, you see the vultures are coming. Right, and they're really big, scary-looking birds, and they would like explain this, you know, like how they felt and everything. But then they just stopped. So then, people in the community—some people knew about it, other people didn't really know the details of it. The, the this Tower of Silence is run by the Muslim tribe, and um, in the nineties, this uh, Middle aged woman uh, had lost her mother and it was really her closest relation and she was really upset and talked to the priest and the priest was like yeah, the new culture is really your mom's body is just it and rotten right? And she was super upset and she went to the parsi panchayat and she complained and complained and they were like, everything is fine, everything is fine this is all according to them, right? They have their own uh, version of the story and then she hired a photographer to secretly go into the tower and take photos of the, the rotting forces. Mm-hmm. So even the priests and the people involved with in the towers, priests who would say the body would be eaten in about three hours by the rotting. And now they were just lying there for days and days. Of Again, she took the photos, went to the trust and said, look, this is the." And they were like, don't worry about it. What do you expect to find there? Right? It's not going to be a pretty sight anyway. And she just got so frustrated that she's leaked the photos to the press. And then there was a huge uproar in the community about that. And then slowly there were groups in the community who said, Why don't we move towards electric polition? Right? And then we can and there was a group called the Deathly Dignity Group who said, We want all the same prayers that we've always had, but this system of um you know the the Excarnation basically where the body is even by the words is not working, we should adapt to something new. And for a long time that wasn't allowed, and most a lot of it was because there was no space, right? We need like to have spaces to do these kinds of things. And um, and then there was a huge change in twenty, I'm trying to think twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen. When they built a crematorium for Parsis, and they had their own hall and their own space to do it. And so that was a big adaptation. And again, some Parsis think this is the worst thing. It's the most irreligious thing that these people are doing, right? Putting the most polluting thing into the most pure. And, um, and other Parsis in, in Mumbai say we have to change the times and we want our loved ones to be. You know, in front with it so so this again is a very Mumbai story because in other cities in India and across the world like small communities have had different adaptations so in Hong Kong they ought to always have a cemetery mm-hmm. and uh, but they do line the grave with cement so the body doesn't come into contact with the earth mm-hmm. and they still do this and so there's a beautiful cemetery in happy Valley small, but it's really, really beautiful. And they keep, that is the practice done in Hong Kong. And so, um, while I was reading uh, about all these, and you know, seeing all the controversy and all these adaptations, if you look at the literature, people don't write about terrestrial therapy or community. And so, I said, I really felt that this was Not just uh, like, oh, I want to fill the gap, but I think one of the reasons that people aren't writing about them is that a lot of the literature on the Zoroastrian religion is written as if there are not living Zoroastrians today. Mm -hmm. It's written as if it's like a historical community that's kind of died out. Um, And but I think it's really interesting to see how people have adapted um, and what their choices are and why they're making their choices. because. You know, um, and maybe Gordon, I think I've heard Gordon speak about this, Gordon Matthews about in his meetings of life class, right? But when you talk to people, and I think probably many, many, many people around the world, even if they are religious or not religious, what happens to their body after they die is important to them, Mm -hmm. right? It means something to them. And they can be like, you know, I want my body to go to science or I want my body thrown into a pit. But or I want a huge elaborate religious ritual around it, but it's still important to them. Whatever choice they're making, and so the new project was really about looking at these different adaptations mm-hmm. in different places and why people were making their choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as you said, this um, issue of adaptation is not is not just about Casio, It's not just about any um, small community. It's about yeah. like everyone has this. Issue and everyone has to think about how to adapt to new era, new time, new space. Yes, and the space becomes so important, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I had never seen before coming to Hong Kong like a cemetery like on a hill like that. (laughs) Right, and I'm like, but that's because of the space. Mm -hmm. But also, it's because of wanting, you know, there. I'm so ignorant about this, but like wanting, uh, you know, to be facing a certain way or to be facing the sea, higher up or lower down. All of these things make a big difference, mm. and so you know you won't. Um, so there are actually like death studies groups um, that go around and uh, look at different adaptations of things and journals that are based on that stuff. Of course, Professor is working on that stuff as well. So um, I loved his book about you know why like, Humble has real estate value and the way it does. It's because it was the center of Queen That's super interesting. Mm -hmm. After studying anthropology and after doing the research, how how do you look at your own community or your own your own identity Mm -hmm. Um, or this topic? That's good. Um, I think I, for me personally, doing my research in Mumbai was really in you know enriching because. I got to spend a lot of time with my family, and, um, and you know, for good and bad, <laughs> sometimes it's difficult, and, um, and, and learn about, and also just learn about how differently, different people think about things, and it's shocking sometimes, you are say, say, we're the same religion, we're the same social class, you know, relative to one another, but you think about the world so differently than I do and I think that was really interesting. And also for me, it was um, interesting to because I think I'm a pretty progressive, left leaning person, but um, to listen to very, very conservative people and not agree, but understand where they were coming from. And I think for me that was that was really big. And I big lesson about um, you know, you know, when you teach classes on religion, to um, to sort of say like. Why, you know, we have to understand why their world makes sense to them, right? So can we take ourselves out of our own assumptions and think through how they are Yeah. And then coming to Hong Kong, um is to me was so strangely familiar, even though I've never been here before. Obviously I don't speak Cantonese, but um like there's the same kind of word song in Hong Kong as in Mumbai. Um uh, there's uh You know the heat is the same. Like the big urbanness is the same. Hong Kong is much more sort of fancy yet developed than Mumbai. It is absolutely. But there is like some uh, familiarity to here that I really, I really like. Yeah. Also, and perhaps my last question Mm -hmm. is uh, (laughs) those basic ones. Like. Actually, how come you talk to study anthropology? Oh. <laughs> how do you start your journey in anthropology? Um, that's a good question. So, I went to college as an anthro major. I took one class and I didn't like it. <laughs> I really didn't like it. And the class was really big, it had like 350 people in this lecture. The professor was just talking in the front. I love my, my TA, she was amazing. And I actually just sent her an email recently. I was like, I'm sure you don't remember me, but you changed my life. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and then I actually got frustrated. All it was also logistics about the way that the major was that I really wanted to study abroad in my undergraduate, and the Anthrop major, ironically, made it quite difficult to do that. Mm-hmm. They had a lot of required classes, and then I was like, oh, they won't let me do what I want to do. So I joined. Um, program instead where you kind of like make your own thing with some constraints and so I studied uh, political economy instead and so I could take classes in ecology history economics and political science and then make my own major and so that's how I switched out and um, and then in my first master's I thought I want to I wanted to do the master's to decide what I wanted to my PhD because I was pretty sure I wanted to do a PhD mm-hmm. and I couldn't decide between history and anthropology. And then I took like a really hardcore history class where they made me do archival research and I was so bored. Mm-hmm. Not with the class, the class was fascinating, but I don't have the stamina for archival research. Mm-hmm. If you see a historian in the archive, like a really historian, they yeah excited and they're like, look what I found, this one page in this dusty book. And I'm like, where are the people I want to talk to somewhere? <laughs> and I really it was it was a great experience for me. I learned so much, but I also learned that I had limits to what I good at and what I want to do. And um and then I started applying for anthropology. And sometimes I really felt in the beginning um, of studying anthropology in graduate school, like all these people were talking about all these references that they knew because they all had an undergrad in Anthropology and I was like, oh, I don't know, I don't know that, I don't know this, I don't know that. And then I learned slowly, but I had to do a lot of learning on my own. Yeah. yeah. But I think why I chose Anthropology besides the, the you know, disinterest in doing archival work was the, art, the ethnographies and the lectures I went to and the ethnographies I read they were asking questions about the world that I wanted to know about, mm-hmm. right, like questions about how things are working. And so that's why it was really like, I felt like it was, it was better suited so for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now I'm a big fan. <laughs> so. <laughs> cool. um, yeah. Okay, so uh, thank you so much for your time, oh, I think you. this a very good wrap up of how Come to be an anthropologist and your journey, and you're also like um, finding your own uh, answers to your big questions, and, and which is a very universal um, issue, is not just um, tied to a specific group, and it's gonna be like very insightful for all, for all of us. Thank so you, thank you for your time. great questions. Yeah, we really think about connections. Yeah. Thank you, thanks. thanks. Thank
0: you for listening to the episode. I hope you enjoy it and get to understand more about the Parsi community in Hong Kong and abroad. In the next episode,
1: we will have a postgraduate student to talk about gender and anthropology. Stay tuned!